Welcome to the Low Countries Radio, a collaboration between Republic of Amsterdam Radio and the Low Countries website, celebrating Flemish and Dutch history and culture and its impact on the world today. We are a species of ape that loves to play, loves to compete, and loves to challenge ourselves against our peers. Combine this with our amazing capacity for imagination, and it's fairly easy to see how, over time, we have developed a mind-boggling range of ways to exercise this love via the creation of sports. Whether by using our own bodies or those of our animal companions, or by using objects like sticks and stones or bats, balls, nets and rings. In this episode of the Low Countries Radio, we are going to delve into some of the sports that have developed in or been adopted and grown by the societies of the Low Countries. And to do this, we are going to engage the help of my friend, my colleague and my fellow sports enthusiast, Julian Smith. Hello, Julian. Hello, Joe. Hello, listeners. That's right. In this episode, we are going to explore the sports which originated and grew in the Low Countries. We'll learn where they came from, and we'll take a look at how they fit into the modern communities that participate in them. Before we do that, let's just get one thing out of the way. Football, or soccer as it's called in countries which have their own better versions of football, is the number one sport in both the Netherlands and Belgium. In fact, just last week at time of recording, both nations secured their position in the 2022 FIFA World Cup in Qatar. The Netherlands' failure to do this for the 2018 World Cup was a national embarrassment and saw many a Dutchman pull on a red shirt, randomly shout, Allee! and pretend to be one of their southern neighbours for a few weeks that summer. Beyond this point, we're not going to talk about football. Instead, we intend to look at some of the more obscure native games of the Low Countries. And suffice it to say, with most of them, obscure is definitely the operative word. We will hear about people who listen to birds in little boxes while holding a big long stick. We'll see other people who jump across canals also using a big long stick. We'll take a look at people standing in a field, hitting a ball, not with a big long stick, but with their hands, while 10,000 Frisian people sit around watching them enthusiastically and no one else in the world cares. So, saddle up. Wait for the starting gun. On your mark. Ready, set, go! Picture this. It's late spring, and you're going on a Sunday morning stroll down a suburban street in some Flemish town, minding your own business, when you accidentally stumble across hundreds of people preparing for one of the most peculiar sporting competitions in the Low Countries. There's a long row of seats which are evenly spaced out every 2.4 metres down the road. The competitors sit waiting in isolation, shielded from each other, the outside world, and the heavy burden of expectation which sits upon their small, feathered shoulders. They've got names like Miguel, Boomer, Hercules, Zuzu, and Stradivarius. They weigh about 
20 grams, and they've been trained their whole lives for moments like these. At the sign of a raised flag, the crowd is stirred into action. An official shouts out, birds on the ground, and move one seat to the right. Anyone who hasn't yet done so places the cage they've been holding in front of a seat, bids their charges farewell, and moves down the line. A minute later, that same voice yells, Only mark down valid songs. The flag drops and the match is away. An expectant hush falls over the crowd and the sound of birdsong fills the air. Welcome to the exciting world of Suskavit, Finch Warbling. For the next hour, those judges will sit and listen intently as a male finch in the cage in front of them sings his lungs out. Finch warbling competitions take place at the end of spring and in summer because it's at that time when male finches will be at their most vocal, singing to claim their territory and look for a mate. Finches are not particularly rare birds. They live pretty much everywhere in the world. But finches from different areas have their own special dialect in their call, kind of like a bird accent. Birds from Flanders sing a song which ends with a particular flourish, which Flemish finch keepers, known as finkineers, call a suskavit. Have a listen to this and see if you can pick it up. Do you hear that little bit at the end of each call? That is a suskavit. And that means that this bird is singing a Flemish song. Now have a listen to this and see if you can hear it. That's right. That little bit at the end is totally different. And it's definitely not a Suskavit. Finkineers call this a Valsazang, or in English, a Wallonian song, or a French song. It doesn't actually mean that the bird is from Wallonia or that it speaks French. It just means that it's definitely not Flemish. And thus, according to these finkineers, it's an invalid song. The judges will keep track of the amount of suskavits the bird in front of them sings by putting a chalk mark on a big long stick. Of course, they'll also want to know how their own bird is doing, so they'll keep an ear out on them too just to make sure the judge next to them is doing their job properly. After an hour, the official will once again raise the flag to let the judges know that the match is over and the counting will begin. Whichever bird has completed the most suskavits is the champion. An average finch will make anywhere between 300 to 500 calls per hour, but the very best will sing more than a thousand suskavits in that time. The winner of the competition will collect a grand prize of roughly five euros and a small trophy to mark the achievement. It's not much, but the pride and esteem which they have won more than makes up for the paltry prize money. Flanders has a long history not only of finch warbling, but also bird keeping more generally. Throughout the Middle Ages, the right to capture and kill wild animals, birds and fish belonged to the land-owning lower nobility who ruled in a particular area. 
the people in this upper crust of society were often avid fans of hunting, riding on horses through their estates, bow and arrow in hand, killing deer, boar and stags as sport, and also using falcons to catch smaller birds. One example of this was Mary of Burgundy, who was the Countess of Flanders from 1477 to 1482. Mary was extremely keen on falconry, often being portrayed in portraits with one of the birds on her arm. She is said to have even brought her pet falcons into the bedchamber with her during her wedding night, and she met her untimely death when she fell off a horse during one of these hunting expeditions. Hunting and bird catching was forbidden for regular people in the countryside unless they had explicitly been given permission to do so. There was, however, one important exception to this general rule. The large towns in Flanders, such as Ghent, Bruges and Ypres, had struggled for centuries to win certain privileges from the nobility. One of these was the right to control the countryside out to a certain radius from the city walls. As such, if you lived in a town, you were allowed to catch birds to your heart's content within that radius. Most of the time, the birds were captured so that they could be sold as food in the local markets. In Bruges, for example, in 1490, it was possible to buy a whole array of avian foodstuff at market, such as swans, geese, partridges, chickens, herons, and finches. As was the case with almost every other profession at this time, guilds of bird catchers were created, which regulated when, where, and how birds could be caught. It was common practice to use small bait birds to lure other larger birds in. After that, bird catchers would then grab them using either nets or snares. Sometimes they would even place out sticks which had been smeared with glue so that any bird which landed on them was unable to fly away. During the seasons when hunting was not allowed, these bait birds would be kept in cages and it must have been during a particularly long drinking session in the off-season that two bird catchers with finches started arguing with each other about the quality of their birds. You can imagine it. My finch sings more calls than your finch does. I betcha. And so the sport of finch warbling sprang into existence. The oldest text which mentions competitive finch warbling comes from 1595, from the diary of Augustine van Hernichem of Ypres. This text says that on the 1st of May of that year, a finch singing match was held between 6 and 7 o'clock in the morning to determine who would be the king of the Birdcatchers Guild for that year. The winner, by the way, was one Antonis Catane. After the match, the participants all went to mass at the St. Peter's Church and the birds were hung next to the altar. Of course, a lot has changed since those times. Bird catching became deregulated after French revolutionary troops invaded the Austrian Netherlands at the end of the 18th century and abolished all the old laws that favoured the nobility. From that moment on, anybody was allowed to catch birds, meaning that finch warbling increased in popularity, particularly in the countryside. (laughs) 
It was a widely held belief that finches sang more energetically when it was dark. So it was common practice for the birds to be blinded by having red hot needles held close to their eyes which would fuse their eyelids together. This kind of cruelty came to an end at the beginning of the 20th century, particularly after the horrors of the First World War. A campaign was held by soldiers who had themselves been blinded by gas attacks in the ferocity of the fighting. This campaign led first to the practice of blinding finches being banned by law in 1921, and finally to the keeping of blind finches also being made illegal in 1929. From then on, it became custom to keep the finches in cages with milk glass windows. These cages still let some light and air in, but they keep it relatively dark enough to keep the finches singing. Since 2003, it has been made illegal to capture wild finches. There are around 7,000 finch wobbling competitions in Flanders each year. And since 2017, the sport has been listed as part of the intangible heritage of Flanders. Still, finch warbling is often marred by accusations of animal cruelty. The birds are fed unhealthy diets, they're kept in cramped conditions, and they're stimulated to sing by artificial lighting and CD players which constantly play their mating calls. There have even been Lance Armstrong-style doping scandals. Perhaps the most outrageous of all cheating sagas in the world of finch warbling occurred when it was discovered that one participant in a competition hadn't actually put a bird inside the cage, but instead just put a CD player in it which was playing bird songs. Given that finch warbling isn't exactly played for high-stakes prize money, this event shows, more than anything else, the extraordinary lengths human beings will go to claim that they are better at doing something than anyone else is. Perhaps the most emblematic of all traditional sports to originate from the Low Countries is one which was captured in a painting from 1564 called The Procession to Calvary by the Netherlandish Renaissance artist Peter Bruegel the Elder. The painting shows a procession in which Christ is carrying the cross towards the place of his crucifixion in a big open hilly landscape, which actually looks more reminiscent of northern Europe than it does of the Holy Land. What makes the painting interesting for our purposes are some of the many dozens of figures depicted in the background, all in common Flemish dress, who are either doing their regular thing or heading towards the execution site. There are soldiers and peasants, farmers and workers, beggars and holy people, and many children playing around. Just below, a giant rock which juts out of the landscape, you can see a few people who are making their way to the assembly, trying to get across a small body of water. To do this, they are using a pole that has been stuck in the mud. One of them has already traversed the body of water, another waits his turn, while the third is captured right in the act. Having leapt off the bank, he has grabbed the pole, is hanging from it, and looks like he is about to leap onto the opposing side. And this, dear listeners, is known as Polstock Verspringen in Dutch, 
It is more commonly referred to, however, by its Frisian name, Fjellepen. These words literally translate into English as pole vaulting for distance or far leaping, but neither translation really captures the essence of the game. Perhaps a better name would be something like ditch vaulting or canal clearing. The sport basically entails a person running at speed towards a body of water in the middle of which a long pole is standing, protruding out, waiting for them. At the appropriate moment, the competitor will jump towards the water, grab onto the vertical pole, and then use his momentum to gracefully sail over the water, and if all has gone well, land safely on the other side. The precise origins of Fjellepen are hard to pin down. It's not difficult to see how such an activity would have developed in the Low Countries, though. Anyone who has ever walked their way through Flanders, Holland, or Friesland will be well aware of the quagmires which abound in these wet and waterlogged lands. In the low-lying polder areas, close to the coasts of Belgium and the Netherlands, farmers' fields are often completely surrounded and delineated from one another by long drainage ditches. They are an ever-present feature of the landscape. If you were a medieval farmer and wanted to easily and dryly get from one of your fields to the other without the need of a bridge or a boat, well, jumping using a stick was the next most obvious solution. People also apparently used to vault across ditches to get into fields during bird brooding season in order to collect bird eggs. Clearly, by Bruegel's time, it was a common enough activity for him to place it in the background of his painting. One of the more intriguing references to jumping with a pole in Dutch history can be found in a story from the Siege of Alkmaar of 1573. This was during the early phase of the Dutch revolt against the Habsburg Spanish king Philip II. Most of the Spanish troops had been stationed in the south. They were wary of an impending invasion from France. As such, many cities in the northern provinces of Friesland, Gelderland and Holland were relatively easy targets for rebels to take over. And this they did in places such as Enkhuizen, Gouda, Dordrecht, Zutphen, Alkmaar, Harlem and Narden. A Spanish army led by the son of the hated Duke of Alba marched north to try to recapture the rebellious cities. They left terror in their wake as they burnt down towns and massacred entire populations with such fury that it became known as the Spanish Fury. In late 1572, the Spanish Fury erupted in Mechelen and Zutphen, when the Spanish took Narden in December 1572, around 3,000 people were burned to death, and only a few dozen are thought to have survived. On the 21st of August 1573, the Spanish army reached the walls of Alkmaar. Alkmaar had been preparing for a siege. The walls had been reinforced, turrets had been built, and having seen how the Spanish had treated other cities which had fallen to them, the citizens of Alkmaar were determined to hold out. The odds were definitely not in their favour though. Up to 15,000 Spanish troops surrounded them. 
Inside the city, there were only about 800 rebel soldiers and around the same number of regular citizens. As soon as they arrived, the Spanish guns opened on Alkmaar and it became clear to those inside that they needed help. So, on the 2nd of September, out of besieged Alkmaar, snuck a man by the name of Martin Peterzone van der May. He had been given a message intended for the rebel leadership. The message was cleverly hidden. It had been rolled up and placed inside a hollowed-out pole stock, one of those poles used for jumping across ditches. Armed with his stick and this note, van der May was able to sneak out of the city, leap over the fields, avoid the besieging Spanish and get the letter to nearby Schagen. This message still exists in the Alkmaar City Archive today, where it's been helpfully translated into modern Dutch, which Joe will now translate into English for you. Quote, We are very astonished that you make no attempt to free us, in spite of your promise, and that you have not communicated to us, when you have more possibilities to do so than we do. Unless you come to relieve us at the earliest opportunity, either with soldiers or by breaching the dikes, we will have to surrender the city to the enemy. And should this happen, we testify before God and the world that it was not our fault or our untrustworthiness, but wholly your fault. We therefore urge you to relieve us as soon as possible, for we do not have enough gunpowder to withstand even half a rush, end quote. Soon after this message was delivered, rebel soldiers cut the dikes by the sea close to Alkmaar. The area around the city was inundated, and by the 8th of October, 1573, the rising waters left the Spanish armies no choice but to leave, and the siege was over. Alkmaar's salvation was a man-made flood, delivered by a message hidden in the pole of a canal-jumping carpenter. How Dutch is that? The victory of the rebels at Alkmaar is seen as a turning point in the war against Spain, with an expression from those times being, by Alkmaar begint de victorie. The victory began at Alkmaar. To commemorate the brave deeds of Martin van der Mey, today, in the centre of Alkmaar, right next to the city's main church, there's a statue of him, holding one of those big, long, canal-jumping poles. By the 18th century, Fieljepen had developed from a practical means of transportation into a competitive sport. The earliest evidence of an organised match can be found in an advertisement in a newspaper from Friesland, the Leovada Courant. This ad says that on the 24th of August, 1767, the widow of a local castellan named Ipe Herbens would conduct a competition of pole jumping over a canal called the Bolsvada Fart, with the grand prize being a, quote, curious silver knife, end quote. That sounds curious and definitely worth risking getting wet for. Despite this, however, it was not until the 20th century that Fieljepen was organised into a regulated sporting code. A league was established in Friesland in 1957 and across Utrecht and South Holland in 1960. Six years following that, a sort of national competition evolved 
wherein these two separate leagues came together to compete for the overall supremacy of the pole in the Netherlands. It is most certainly a spectator sport, and we highly recommend you watch footage of it on YouTube. Men and women sit around a canal, drinking beer, watching each participant take his or her turn. They have a long run-up, their legs and arms are pumping, and they spring off the edge, clasping the upright standing pole. In those few split seconds that they cling onto the pole as it begins to topple forward, the competitors then clamber further up, thus giving themselves a higher point from which to complete the jump onto dry land. It is the point where the pole jumper lands on the other side that will be measured as their distance achieved. Fjolljepen requires not only strength, agility and athleticism, but also the skill to appropriately judge the speed with which to hit the pole. If you run too fast, you won't give yourself enough time to shimmy up the pole and gain distance. If you go too slow, the pole won't take you across the ditch because you won't have enough momentum and you'll end up in the water. That will be sad for you, but no doubt delightful for the spectators. Technology has greatly impacted Fjolljepen in modern times, with the transition from wood to aluminium and then to carbon fibre poles seeing longer and longer distances being reached. In the 1960s, 9 to 10 metres was considered impressive. Since 2017, the men's world record has stood at a whopping 22.21 metres, achieved by Jaco de Groot from the town of Wurden in Utrecht. The women's world record has been held since 2019 by Marit van der Waal from It Heidenskip in Friesland and stands at 18.19 metres. That is some serious pole jumping. So, with that out of the way, dear listeners, it is time for us to depart the land of Fjöljepen, leap across a metaphorical canal, and go explore the green pastures of the next traditional sport from the Low Countries, Katzen. Every year in summer, the town of Franeke in Friesland almost doubles in population as 10,000 visitors flock from around the province to watch one of the longest-running sporting competitions in the world, the PC. Having been held since 1854, the PC is the most prestigious annual tournament in the world of Katzen, or Frisian handball. For an outsider looking in, at first glance, Katzen is almost impossible to understand. It looks like a love child between tennis and cricket, with two teams of three facing each other on a grass field marked out into various sections. The teams take turns running in and hitting a small hard ball with their hands towards the opposing side, who try to hit it back toward the other team. The rules are complicated and we are not going to try to explain them but the general gist is similar to tennis. Score more points than the opposition to win a game. Win two games to win a set. And win three sets to win the match. If you win enough matches to win the PC, you will find yourself etched into Frisian folklore forever. 
Despite its following in Friesland today, Katzen is believed to have originated much further south, in Picardy in northern France. According to the most popular theory, at the end of the 12th century, a bunch of monks in a convent in Picardy started playing a game which would come to be known as Jeu de Pomme, Game of the Palm. It's unclear exactly how the game worked, but it's thought that two teams would set up in the gallery of a cloister, with one trying to smash a ball with their hands through the openings of the Gothic arches, whilst the other tried to stop those balls from going through. The influence of this game was great, as it spread beyond the clergy and into the imagination of the nobility in Spain, Italy, France and the Low Countries. Different forms and versions of the game emerged. Some involved hitting it with your hands, others with a whole host of hitting implements, including, delightfully, tambourines. In the 19th century, a variant emerged in England utilising a racket, which came to be called lawn tennis, or as we know it today, tennis. In the Low Countries, the name of the game was derived from the Picard word meaning to chase or hunt. Chasseur became Katzen. Katzen, like many other ball games, was wildly popular in the Low Countries. This can be attested to by the vast number of archival records which show that the game was regularly banned by authorities in heavily populated cities. They were more concerned with catering to the Karens of the time and keeping the streets free of balls flying around than they were with people having fun. In Rotterdam in the 15th century, you could be fined for, quote, kartsing or tennising on the streets or on the houses on the street or on the churchyard, end quote. The game spread further north to Friesland in 1505 when dike builders from Holland brought it with them as they came to the area to construct a large polder known as Het Bild. As Kartsen spread geographically, it also grew in popularity within the upper echelons of power. By the 17th century, there were hundreds of Karts courts across the Low Countries, which probably more resembled covered tennis courts rather than the open fields Kartsen is played on today. Even the Dutch father of the fatherland, William the Silent, was a fan of the game, as was his grandson, William II, and two, his son, William III, the eventual king of England. By the end of the 18th century, however, Kartsen had fallen out of favour with the aristocracy. In his book, Natural History of Holland, from 1772, Johannes Lefranc van Berke, a physician, scientist and painter from Leiden, described Kartsen as a boerespeel, a farmer's game before going on to also praise it as being a, quote, manly game, end quote, which could leave any healthy and agile man with sore shoulders and swollen hands for days. As the years went by, the game continued to disappear from the wider sporting consciousness as our modern sports began to thrive. By the 20th century, Kartsen, that is, the hitting with the hands version as opposed to modern tennis, was not being played anywhere in the Netherlands, except... Of course, in the indefatigably self-defining province of Friesland. Yes, that's right. The most autonomously minded area of the Netherlands today identified so strongly with Kartsen 
that it is now often just called Frisian handball, despite, as we have seen, the fact that it was brought to Friesland by Hollanders in the 16th century. One of the reasons Katzen managed to survive in Friesland was the establishment of the Permanent Committee in 1853 by five of the leading citizens of the town of Franeke. The goal of this committee was the promotion and maintenance of the sport of Katzen, as well as the enhancement of popular entertainment. To achieve this goal, the PC organised a Katzen tournament in Franeke the next year, 1854. It was heavily promoted by the local newspapers and proved to be a huge success, not only for the economy of the town, but also for the general popularity of Katzen in Friesland. It became an annual tradition and has now turned into a festive occasion, with visitors coming from around the province not only to watch the games, but also to drink beers in the local cafes, eat in the local restaurants, and enjoy the carnival atmosphere. It is the longest-running sporting tournament in the Netherlands and is often claimed to be the longest-running sporting tournament in the world. In the almost 170 years since the PC first took place, the tournament has only been missed five times. In 1859 because of smallpox, in 1866 because of cholera, in 1943 and 44 because of the Second World War, and in 2020 because of COVID. The creation of the PC started a whole new wave of popularity for Katzen in Friesland. In 1897, the Frisian Katzen Federation was established. We know for sure they had big ambitions, because a year later they changed their name to the Netherlands Katzen Federation. They set out to once again spread the game into the rest of the country and the world. In 1928, Katzen was featured as a demonstration sport at the Amsterdam Olympic Games with a match being played on a cricket field just outside the main stadium a few hours before the gold medal football match between Uruguay and Argentina. This was the climax of a major effort through the 1920s to internationalise the game and connect with sister organisations, particularly in Belgium, France, Spain and Italy. The biggest obstacle to all of this, though, was the game's history. The fact that it had been invented hundreds of years earlier and spread throughout the continent by word of mouth meant that there was no singular codified form of it. Clubs from different regions played by their own rules. Around the same time as the Amsterdam Olympics, an international body was created called the Confederation Internationale de Jeux de Balle Pelote de Pomme, or the CIJBPP. The intention was to create an international version of the sport. Although the CIJBPP organises European and world tournaments which use these international rules, this version never really caught on at a local level. It turns out the people in Friesland would rather just keep on playing Katzen, whilst people in Italy would also rather just keep hitting the ball with a tambourine. And really, can you blame them? In Friesland, there is an old established Katzen club called the Katzvereniging Pim Mulier. The person this club is named after, Pim Mulier, is one of the legendary, almost mythical figures of Dutch sports history. Mostly because he claimed to have personally himself introduced into the Netherlands sports such as tennis, 
football, cricket, athletics, field hockey, and ice hockey. Whilst a lot of these claims are probably dubious, one thing which we cannot doubt, however, is the role which he played in the development of one of the most culturally significant Dutch sports, and the one with which we wish to finish this episode, ice skating. Dames and heren, welkom. Het giet on. Komende zaterdag 4 januari wordt de 15e Elfstedentocht verreden. Sportief Nederland heeft voor die schoonheid nauwelijks oog. Ice skating is, and for a very long time, has been an important part of the Netherlandish sporting scape and culture, although it is thought that people in the far northern reaches of Scandinavia were the first to begin gliding over ice some 4,000 years ago, it was in the 12th or 13th century that people in the Low Countries began to sharpen the edges of the blades that sat in the sole of the footwear, allowing for greater freedom of lateral movement across the ice instead of just mere forward propulsion. There is plenty of evidence that ice skating in the Low Countries was common in the late Middle Ages, regardless of social class or wealth. We have already mentioned Peter Bruchel the Elder in this episode. Well, in 1565, a year after he produced the procession to Calvary that we spoke about, the one that contained the pole vaulters, he is believed to have also painted Winter Landscape with Ice Skaters and Bird Trap. This sort of scene would actually become its own genre in the 17th century, with other famous low country artists such as Hendrik Averkamp, Jan Abrahamsson Bierstraten and Jan Griffier all building their reputations on their ability to depict cold scenes and people sliding around on the ice. This all makes sense since, as we well know, there is an abundance of water in the low countries, meaning that in freezing climes, the thousands of canals, rivers, lakes, puddles and ponds all form solid courseways upon which it is possible to cover vast distances on ice skates. Friesland, in particular, can be very amenable for long-distance ice skating. In a seminal work, which he creatively called Winter Sport, from 1893, Pierre Mollier wrote about how he and some friends organised a planned event during the winter months of 1890, in which around 500 people participated and took part in a race to see who could make the trip the fastest. The idea was based on a tradition that had existed since at least the 18th century, which was for skaters to visit 11 cities across Friesland. He wrote... For years, this trip has been undertaken by various good riders. A lot of good skates glide over the Frisian waters, as can be seen from the fact that in the year 1890, more than 500 people made the trip. Most groups consist of four or five people. Sometimes it was three women and one man who skated for 15 or 16 hours. Sometimes it was a son who, with his father in his early 50s, made the trip over the frozen waters and lakes and stood on their skates for more than 15 and a half hours. Then there were four brothers who took a youngster of less than 14 years old with them. The distance is about 185 kilometers, and it can be covered within 15 hours, but usually in 15 and a half hours. 
After this seminal occurrence in which Pim Moulier supposedly played a major role, a committee was formed, the Association of the Eleven Frisian Cities, with representatives from 22 Frisian districts given the task of pulling off a massive national cultural sporting event with usually only about 48 hours notice. The first official edition was held in 1909, and the medal which the winner received was of course designed by Pim Moulier himself. Since then, the realisation of what became known as the Elf Tocht, the 11-city race, has become so central to Netherlandish sport that each winter the entire country holds its breath and hopes for a prolonged period of freezing temperatures that will allow the race to be held. If conditions do allow, that is, if the ice is at least 15 centimetres thick along the entirety of the course, then around 15,000 skaters will participate, collecting a stamp in each city to verify that they actually did it. It is such a big deal that in 2012, when it most recently looked likely to happen because of 10 days of sub-freezing temperature, Prime Minister Mark Rutter remarked that, quote, once every 15 years, our country is not governed from The Hague but by 22 district heads in Friesland, end quote. Duizenden enthousiaste Friesen doen de wedstrijdrijders uitgeleiden wanneer ze de donkere nacht ingeleidend beginnen aan de eerste van de 200 kilometers die hen wachten. Because the weather conditions necessary for the Elfstedentocht to take place cannot be guaranteed, it has actually only ever been raced 15 times. Some of these have gone into legend, such as the so-called Hell of 63, the 12th instalment. Records were broken as the temperature plummeted. The race started in about minus 12 degrees Celsius, and soon after it began, Friesland was engulfed in a heavy snowstorm. Of the 9,862 participants, amateurs and racers, who set off from Leovarden in the early hours of January 18, 1963, only 127 managed to complete it. Frostbite, broken bones, disorientation and frozen eyes were just some of the many ailments that befell the thousands who had to remove themselves from the torturous conditions. The favourite to win the race was Renier Parping, and he would become the eventual winner. But in order to do so, he had to spend around 10 hours skating by himself, blinded by the blizzard which would not abate. The person who came second, Jan Outham, spent a significant portion of the race towing another man who had also been blinded, Jane van den Berg. Thanks to this, Jane van den Berg came third. After having won the race, Renier Parping was ushered quickly into a first aid tent where he was treated by an infrared lamp and congratulated by the then Queen, Juliana, and her daughter, Princess Beatrix. Another imminent disaster was beckoning, as the ice at the finishing zone was so overloaded with people, including the royal family, that it was giving off threatening cracks. Everyone soon had to leave. For his victory, Parping won the grand prize of a silver cigarette box and two tickets to an ice skating rink in Daventer. Jeez, what a prize. You've just almost been blinded in a snowstorm ice skating for 15 hours. Here are two tickets to an ice skating rink. Despite this crappy prize, however, 
Renier Parping's name did go down in Dutch folklore, especially because it would be another 22 years before the Elfstedentocht actually happened again. This was also not the only involvement the royal family has had in the Elfstedentocht. In 1986, while he was still a young prince, the now King of the Netherlands, Willem Alexander, completed the race, under the pseudonym W.A. van Buren. Bovendien gaan nu ook de kilometers in de benen zitten. Meer dan 80 hebben ze in bijna vijf uur afgelegd. Door het maagdelijk witte Friese land vloeteren de wedstrijdrijders voort in de richting Bolzwart, in afstand op de helft. Het zwaarste stuk komt daarna pas. The most recent edition of the Elfstedentocht Talk was in 1997. Since then, apart from in 2012 when it almost happened, the winter weather has not really cooperated to provide the conditions necessary for the race to take place. As the effects of climate change and our warming planet slowly become apparent, it is unclear when the race will happen again, or indeed, if it ever will. In August 2021, however, climate scientists in Germany discovered evidence that the Gulf Stream, a strong ocean current which regulates the temperatures in Northern Europe and keeps it relatively warm and inhabitable in the winter months, could potentially collapse. This would have the effect of bringing in incredibly harsh winter conditions to Europe, the likes of which haven't been seen since the last ice age. Many people on social media in the Netherlands reacted to this, let's face it, dire news with typically dry humour by commenting, it geet on, which is the Frisian way of announcing that the elf stayed and talked will go ahead. When life gives you lemons, make lemonade. When climate change gives you ice age conditions, go ice skating. And although this might seem like some pretty severe gallows humour, it does go to show the indelible connection which people in the Netherlands feel towards the elf stayed and talked, and in a wider sense, how those in the low countries connect to sports in general. Sport is something which generations of families have taken part in, which celebrates both the local community as well as wider social identities. Taking part in sports is something which binds people to the traditions of that place and gives individuals and teams the chance to etch their names into the history books besides those of legendary figures from the past. Those local sports are part of the cultural fibre of the low countries and help define the region as distinct from its much larger neighbours. So, as we dismount from this episode, let us celebrate those individuals who jump over canals on poles, competitively keep track of bird songs or brave blizzards for 15 hours. In so doing, they sportingly keep those traditions alive today. So let us now award them the Low Countries Radio Gold Medal of Participation. Congratulations, and please take your place on the podium, because when it comes to sport around these parts, everyone's a winner. Except, of course, when it comes to winning football World Cup finals. Too soon? Do you want to know more about Flemish and Dutch history and culture? Visit www.the-low-countries.com. This podcast is made by Republic of Amsterdam Radio.